Great to have you with us here this morning, uh, especially those of you here on campus who uh, went out in the, in the frigid cold to be here. Uh, if you're still cold, uh, we're a cuddling church. Actually, only if you're married, you can cuddle, but otherwise you probably shouldn't. Uh, but you can stay warm however you need to. But, but it is great to have you here. If you're online, great to have you online. Hopewell Campus, always great to, to have you with us. Um, we are starting a new series, sort of. Uh, we're starting this series, Kingdom Living Volume 2, but of course that means we have already done Kingdom Living Volume 1. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And so in the fall, we looked at most of the Sermon on the Mount. In the next several weeks, we'll be looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is really uh, Jesus' primary message of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in fact, it's one of his best-known Teachings. It doesn't mean that the other teaching doesn't teach on that, but in Matthew 5 through 7, we have recorded this one message of Christ that really covers what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, John Stott explains, he says, in the, it's the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. So no matter where you find yourself this morning, uh, whether you're here as a follower of Christ, maybe you've been following the Lord for years, maybe months or days, or, or maybe you're here investigating the things of Christ. No matter where you are, it's worth looking at the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so if you're following him, my guess is you want to follow him. And, and if you're seeking what it means to follow him, what a great way to know what that looks like than to look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes just that. Jesus presents a picture, if you will, of Christian culture, which is much different than one offered by society. And it's not new. From the very beginning, when God chose the people of Israel, called them out to become a nation, he separated them from the rest of the world. In fact, listen to what God declares to his chosen people, Israel. Leviticus 18, 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then God proceeds to share through Moses what he wants the chosen people to be, who he wants them to be, and what he wants them to do. And what Christ does in the sermon is to find really this Christian walk. What does it mean to walk as one who's following Christ? So let's look at the Sermon on the Mount in context. The Sermon on the Mount, again, is found in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I think that is so important. From the very beginning, Jesus wanted individuals to know what it meant to be his follower, like he didn't simply like sort of rope them in and then say, hey, by the way, this is what a follower looks like. From the very beginning of his public ministry, he laid it out very clearly. This is what a follower looks like. This is what you're pursuing in me. Jesus had been baptized by John. He'd been tempted in the wilderness. He'd been teaching. He'd been announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and the need to come to him, the need to repent. And in this context, the sermon really describes the this amazing righteousness that's a part of God's kingdom, and therefore anyone who's following Christ, any believer, this work of God in the life of a believer. The sermon really describes what it looks like when we recognize Jesus. 
as Savior and Lord, when we receive him as Savior and Lord. And the sermon is the most really descriptive New Testament passage, if you will, on genuine Christian culture. And so there's a lot packed into it, worth our study. And so how does Matthew introduce us to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Matthew 5, 1 through 2, this is how Matthew introduces us to it. He's recounting this amazing teaching of Christ. It says, seeing the crowds, speaking of Jesus, Jesus seeing the crowds, large crowd, not hard to miss, very hard to miss. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, picture this with me. A large crowd is following Jesus, and here he is near Capernaum. It's right off the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he's on this mountain called Karhatin. It's really a large hill, a mountain in context to Israel, not necessarily what we would consider a mountain as far as how high it was, but it's a mountain all the same. And he's sitting on top of it. In fact, I've been to the the location where this took place. It's a beautiful location. The Sea of Galilee, this, this big mountain, this hill coming up. Jesus sitting on the top, probably the crowd sort of scattered out uh, around him. And in fact, some scholars have compared this mountain to Mount Sinai, where God, through Moses, first gave the ethics, if you will, through the law of what it meant to be his follower. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. And he sits down, which is the posture of a rabbi. He sits down as their teacher, and his disciples come to him. Now, it's really possible when it says the disciples came to him that, that what it meant was his disciples, that those who were closest to him came to him, and everyone else is sort of listening in, sort of like we are, listening in what Jesus is saying. And then it says, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I want to say something that's really quite obvious. Jesus was with them. So he's not just teaching them in the sense of sort of, you know, in a way that he's not in their presence. Like Jesus is there teaching him. How, how many of you think that would just be an amazing thing? You know, Jesus is there. But here's the reality I don't want you to miss. Something that's not so obvious. So it's obvious we understand in the passage Jesus is with them. But here's something that's not so obvious. Jesus is with us. Like, like when we explore God's word, it's not something we do apart from him. It's something we do with him. But even now the spirit of Christ is working as we look at his word, helping that word become a part of us, helping us become the people he's called us to be. And so I want us to keep that in mind, that certainly we do things for Jesus. In fact, when we look at Romans 12, 1, it's really clear. What, what do we do in view of everything that God's done for us? Salvation, the work of salvation. We offer our whole selves to God, right? That makes sense. But it's not like we offer ourselves to him apart from him. Romans 12, 2 talks about the transforming of our mind that happens through the spirit of God when we lay ourselves at his feet. And then Romans chapter 8 talks about the cooperation of our, ourselves with the very spirit of Christ working in us. You say, Craig, what are you getting at? I, I think it's so easy as a believer to forget Jesus is with us as we're journeying through life. Like, it's so easy to come, even this morning, and sort of know that we should gather as a church, learn about Jesus, learn how to walk, learn all the things we should do, and forget the fact that who we are in Christ and what he's doing in us. Like, that's the good news. Jesus is with us. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. And in his spirit, 
He indwells us, leading us and guiding us. So even in our study this morning, we understand that we study with Christ, not apart from him, with Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers a question that many people have. How do you talk to God? If God is with us and throughout the day we have this amazing opportunity to talk with him, how do we do that? In fact, it's one of the key questions people ask me all the time, especially when they're new to the faith. How do you talk to God? Well, Jesus answers it for us. Let's begin by looking at Matthew 6, 7 through 8. Jesus is teaching. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus says, when you approach God in prayer, it should be thoughtful, not mechanical. When you approach God in prayer, it should be thoughtful, not mechanical. See, it's interesting. Jesus is always calling us to something higher than the world around us. Again, John Stott, he he makes this insight. He says, Jesus emphasizes, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes that Christian righteousness is greater. Why? Because it's inward. Christian love is broader because it's inclusive of even our enemies. And Christian prayer deeper because it's sincere in thought than anything found outside the Christian community. Now, Jesus is not forbidding all repetition. What he's teaching against here is verbosity. What's verbosity? It's it's degrading prayer from a real and personal approach to God to a mere recitation of words. Jesus forbids prayer that is all lips and not heart and mind. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's so easy to think that, that maybe through our long words, we can convince God to do something for us. There's been times where I've heard a prayer and I thought, my goodness, that person has a grasp of the English language. I do not. But there are times I hear someone, I go, my goodness, they know words I didn't even know. I have to look that up. Is that a real? And it's impressive. I'll admit, it's impressive when someone can speak in such a way and pray in such a way. But you know what impresses me more? The prayer of a child. Simple, to the point. Maybe not as elegant. Sometimes it is, but usually not. As a matter of fact, if you want to get to your meal quick, just ask a kid to pray. Lord, thank you for the meal. Amen. Enough said. I mean, it's pure. And it's interesting that Jesus says, and when you come to me, come to me as a child. With their faith, with their thoughtfulness. Mindful. Not thinking that we can impress God in our prayers and not thinking that we really need to. Because he loves us. He invites us to come to him and to simply have a conversation. And I call it a conversation. Prayer isn't supposed to be a monotonous monologue where we just talk and talk and talk. It's a dialogue where where God speaks to us through his word and through his spirit. And we get to talk about the things of life. And what do we talk about? Well, Jesus answers that too. He says, when you come to the Lord in prayer, prayer, pray thoughtfully, not mechanically. And then he says, listen, he says, pray this way. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Jesus says, pray then like this. And he gives us this, this model of prayer. It's, it's not a prayer that's necessarily meant to simply recite. It's a model. It's the Lord's Prayer. Or some have called it the Disciples' Prayer since it was given from Christ to his disciples. Now, by the way, he's not forbidding us to recite it. There's something special about reciting the Lord's Prayer. There's something powerful. I love it when, a, when we as a church recite the Lord's Prayer together. There's something just amazing about it. But have you ever realized that no matter who leads out in the Lord's Prayer, everyone ends up going to a rhythm? Right? I mean, it makes sense. Otherwise, we'd all be doing our own thing. It would be chaos. But, 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 but when we recite it, there's only power in it if we're mindful that we're reciting it. I feel that way about when we sing. We're singing these songs to God, and, and, and really what, what, what we're doing is we're praying. We're just doing it in song. And sometimes when we're singing, it's so easy if it's familiar to simply be reciting and not engaging. Ever been there? Let me ask you this. I don't care what era you're from. Have you ever sang a song you knew when you were younger and then all of a sudden realized the words? And went, what am I singing? Come on now, right? There's a couple of songs I loved. And I, one was on the radio the other day, I was listening to it, and, and I was like, what? <laughs> I can't, I just never, why? Because it was just reciting. I could sing it, I just didn't really pay attention to it. Jesus is saying, listen, pay attention to it. Pay attention to what you're singing, pay attention to what you're praying. And if we pray the Lord's Prayer together, let's, let's make sure we're, we're reciting it with thought and mind and heart. And then Jesus says this. He says, and remember who you're praying to. When we pray, we approach God as his people. I mean, what an amazing privilege that the God who spoke the world into existence says, come to me as my people. He's our father in heaven, verse 9 says. Now, what does this teach us about how we approach God? We approach God as his children. He's our father. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to think that, that we are in such an intimate relationship with God that we can approach him anywhere, anytime. That we don't have to worry about how we look. We don't even have to worry about how we feel. We can come whether we're in, in the highs of life or the lows. Let me tell you something. You can come to God even when you're upset with him. Matter of fact, you should especially come to God when you're upset with him. He is our our father. And we come to him as his children. We approach God in, in childlike trust because he is our father. Now that word father there is, is a word that can be also interpreted our daddy. It's, it's a word of intimacy. And it's all according how your relationship was with your earthly father and how this trusting him as a father goes with you. I'll be honest, for me, I had a tremendous relationship with my dad. Trusted him totally, really. I mean, more than probably a human being should trust another person. And so when I understood God as my heavenly father, this leap of trusting him wasn't real difficult for me. For you, you might have difficulty with that. And so if that's true of you, because of your relationship with your earthly father, let me encourage you, 
Don't look at him as your earthly father. Look at him as your heavenly father. He's the father you can trust. He's the one we all can trust. Does that make sense? And so we come to him with that childlike trust. We approach God with reverence and respect because he's not just our father, but he's our father in heaven. <laughs> Gives us perspective. I've had people say, try to explain that to me. I said, well, it's a little difficult to explain. But for me, it's this. I'm a child of a king. You're a child of a king too if you're in Christ. He's still the king, but he's also my father. And so I approach him as you would. And my earthly father, that you could, and in my family growing up, you could say, I'm going to say anything you wanted as long as you said it respectfully. You say, what do you mean? Well, the first word that they had in my baby book that I said was peace. Gives you an idea of sort of the, the, the home I was brought up in. And we could say as long as we're respectfully, but if you didn't do it respectfully, it wasn't going to go well. And so even when I have times where I have disappointments, I bring to the Lord, even sometimes disappointments in the way he's working in things. Ever been there? You say, you're a pastor. You shouldn't be like that. Hey, look, I'm one of you. I want to come to him respectfully. Say, Lord, this is where I'm at. And the Lord always meets us where we're at. We're to approach God with confidence that we're his children, and he's our personal, loving, and all-powerful father. And then how do we pray? What do we pray for? Well, we pray for God's concerns as the, to be the sort of the priority. God's concerns are our priority. How will it be God's name, his kingdom come, his will be done? As believers, our top priority is a concern for God's kingdom and will. So how do we pray for God's concerns? We pray that God's kingdom would literally come on earth as it is in heaven over situations. I pray that often over my family, over myself. I pray that over our community. I pray that over our state, our nation. I pray that over the world. I pray that when I pray over a, a people group, for instance, every morning I pray over a people group who, who haven't even heard the gospel. And I say, Lord, may your kingdom be established here. May they hear the gospel. I pray that every day when I pray over persecuted Christians, when I look at the people all over the world. This morning I prayed over the, our believers in Sudan. Do you believe, do you understand in Sudan, that they actually, the Christians live typically in the mountains in Sudan, and that they actually, the government, it sends like bombs to the mountains to try to wipe out the Christians. Let me tell you what, you think the cold is something to get over to come to church? Come on now. But they are growing. And I prayed this morning, God, may your kingdom come. May the oppressors and persecutors become believers. Do something in the Sudanese church. We pray his kingdom would come over, over the things. We pray God's will be done. And I think that's crucial. God's will, not my will. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, may, Lord, may your kingdom come, may my will be done. You know? And, and we, we suggest to God how he should work. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with sharing your heart with the Lord. But we want to do more than pray a whole prayer of how we think God should work, and by the way, and then go, but Lord, your will be done. Ever been there? You're getting quiet this morning. I've been there. No, no, no. We say, Lord, your will be done. One of my favorite quotes on prayer comes from C.S. Lewis. It says, prayer doesn't change God. It changes me. Now, it doesn't mean that prayer doesn't change things. It just means that as we pray, we go with an attitude of saying, Lord, first of all, may your kingdom come in my attitude. May I trust you. Would you work in this situation? May me." May your kingdom be established in such a way that only you could be given glory for what happens there. And then we pray for our needs. 
We pray we lift up our needs and we lift up the needs of others. We turn from God's affairs to our own. And and I, I sort of say that carefully because if it's on your heart, it's on God's mind. God loves you. If it's on your heart, it's on God's mind. So having expressed our our burning concern for God's glory, we now humbly ask for his grace. And what do we pray for? We pray for our physical needs. We ask God to provide our daily bread. And we ask for God to provide for the needs of others. And and this, this one can be difficult for us as Americans because we have so much. So sometimes it's hard for us to differentiate between necessities from luxuries. This morning when I got ready to go to church, I, I tried to use my auto start. Which, by the way, what, a, what an amazing invention. What an amazing invention. And, and, and I went to use it. I thought, oh, it's great. I went out and the truck wasn't on. It didn't work. Oh, my goodness. You would have thought the world was coming to an end. I had to go out and put my key in and turn it. And I went right back in the house. I went, I'm just going to have to be a little later than I thought I was going to be. I'm not going out. It's too cold. And I was sitting there, and I was, I was sort of complaining about it. I sort of laughed and said to my wife, I said, well, at least I didn't have to hook up the horse to the wagon to get to church today. I mean, how wimpy can you be? It's a luxury to have a vehicle. It's a luxury to have an auto start. I need to be with the church of God. And, and so we, we, we sort of have to pray, God, help me learn to be satisfied with what I have. So when you give me more, I'm, I just understand what the blessing that is. We, we pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's interesting. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And he paid the debt, but we couldn't pay. It was a debt to our sin. We deserved it. We worked for it. And the result would have been death. But Jesus died in our stead. And so we daily come to the Lord and we say, Lord, Here's what I, this is where I've struggled yesterday. This is where I've struggled today. This is a, a sin I fell into. Forgive me for that. Why? Because not only do we want to be forgiven of our sin, we want to have victory over it. Come on, church. Victory over it. I don't want to, I don't want to walk in the same old paths I walked before you, Christ. I want, to, I want to learn a different way. You don't do that out of guilt. You do it out of confidence, knowing that God wants to give you a better path. And God, since you've forgiven me, here's the uh uh-oh, help me forgive others. Anyone find that one to be a little challenging at times? Sometimes it's because we misunderstand what forgiveness is. First of all, forgiveness is for the forgiver more than the one you're forgiving. It's about unloading the burden of something you have no control over anyway. How many times have you been upset with someone they didn't know you were upset with them? Or they didn't care. I've had someone say to me, many times actually, I've had people say to me, how do you forgive someone who doesn't even ask for forgiveness? And I said, well, that's not necessary. They don't have to ask for forgiveness for you to forgive them. Forgiveness, that's the power you have is to forgive. You can't change your attitude. You know, forgiveness is just simply saying, Lord, I'm not going to repay the pain on them that they've caused me. You say, well, how do you do that? You do it with Jesus. Not just for Jesus, but with Jesus. Because Jesus was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I go, sure they do, Jesus. They hung you on the cross. Some of the ones who are taunting you are the ones who actually put the nails in your hand. But he's talking big picture, isn't he? They don't truly know I'm the son of God. They don't truly, they don't know what they're doing. God, forgive them. Help them come to me. 
Help them find forgiveness and power and freedom in me. That's what he's praying. Can I just be honest? That's not always the first words off my lips when someone hurts me. It is, it's, more, it's more apt to happen now than it was 10 years ago. Come on, church. I'm becoming better at it, but I need Jesus to be that person. And it's good news because guess what? He's with me. He's doing that work. Father, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. God, give me spiritual victory. All around us, the world of flesh and the devil is, is there to tempt us to lead us down the wrong path. So I'm dependent on Jesus to lead me down the right path. The problem with many a believer is they know they need Jesus to be saved. They don't know they need Jesus to be sanctified. See, salvation is the work that Jesus did on the cross. Sanctification is the work he's still doing in us, making us more like him in his love and his character in his purpose, and his priority. And as desperate as I needed Jesus for salvation, I need him for my sanctification. And thank God I need him for the glorification when the work is done. That work he's doing in us. And so there's a dependency. In fact, the believer who expresses this, this forgiveness is only able to do it through the power of Christ. And I think Jesus is, is really in his prayer really pointing us to the fact that we're, we're, we're in desperate need of Jesus all the time. Like he's the one. And that's why I started by saying, we need to understand Jesus is with us. He, he, he's not just setting us on this journey and then saying, figure it out. He's not just saying, do these things for me and I'll meet you on the other side. But how many times do we treat him like that? Jesus, thank you for saving me. I can't wait until I see you again. And Jesus is standing there going, what do you mean? I'm, I'm here right now. Let's do this thing. Man, this valley's too big for me. I can't go through this. I, I don't see. Jesus is like, I see the other side. Let's do this. I don't know about you, but when I try to do it on my own, it just doesn't work right. But man, when I'm just aware that he's there, that's what I need. He's trustworthy. He's got this. He doesn't just have my future like eternity. Eternity starts today. Walk with me, he says. And then at the end of the prayer, there's this doxology. Now, if you look in your Bible, some of you will have it there. Some of you won't. Some of you have it footnoted. The most common question when someone looks at the Lord's Prayer is, what's going on with the doxology? Why is it in some of the Bibles and in others it's footnoted, some it's just absent? Here's the answer. Because in the best manuscripts we have, the doxology isn't seen there. So most scholars say the doxology wasn't in the original prayer of Jesus. So others will say, well, if it wasn't the original prayer, why is it in some Bibles? And the answer is because it's just so good. And it may not have been Jesus' words, but whoever put it there probably maybe shouldn't have. But they thought, this thing has to close like this. Sounds a little weird. But they wrote out this doxology, but it's very biblical. It's not anti-scripture. It just may not have been Jesus' words. Or we may get up there and say, Jesus may say, I did say that. We don't know. But it's not wrong to pray it. Because it says that what? His is the kingdom. His is the power. 
His is the glory forever. That's good stuff. We start the prayer by saying, our Father in heaven, what a perspective. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And we end the prayer by saying, yours is the kingdom. God has, has power over creation. How many of us need to be reminded of that every day? You have power over creation. You can deal with this, God. I've given it to you. It's yours. Yours is the power. How much power does God have? (laughs) Come on. Yours is the power. And what does he say? I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's like praying. Let me release the resources of heaven in your life. How much power do you have? If you're a believer, it's like (laughs) subatomic. The power that resides in us because of him. And it's because of him, because it says yours is the glory. His is the glory, not me, him. For how long? Forever, always. These things are always true of God. Then Jesus shares Matthew 6, 14 through 15. I I love this. You'll see this in scripture when Jesus teaches, when Paul writes. It's like they, they know where we get hung up on, right? He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, didn't he just say that in the Lord's Prayer? Why did he say it again? Because we struggle with it. Now, by the way, forgiving others isn't a way to earn God's forgiveness. We don't earn God's forgiveness. He gives it freely. What's he talking about here? The more people who have been forgiven understand where their forgiveness comes from, the easier it is to forgive others. I didn't say easy, I said easier. The easier it is to forgive others. Because there are times people hurt me, and if I just remind, am reminded of how much God has forgiven me, I go, well, okay, God, I get it. I can forgive them. You say, well, I didn't do much. I'm a good person. The scripture says your righteousness is like filthy rags compared to Christ. I could go into exactly what the filthy rags are, but I think the word picture is enough. In other words, no matter how good you think you are, you're not as good as you think you are. If you think you're really, really good, you're not any good at all compared to Jesus. And it's not meant to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's meant to make us feel great about who God is. Because in spite of all that, he says, I love you. How do we know he loved us? Because he showed us. He died on the cross for us. What great example. Father, forgive them. They don't know what to do. Bring them to me. Oh, Lord God, help me forgive others. Help me forgive others. Jesus has has presented quite a contrast between sort of these selfless prayers and God-centered prayers. So what's the difference? A God-centered prayer is seeking God's glory. Um, Self-centered prayer isn't about praying for yourself because you should pray for yourself, but you're not seeking your own glory. If you want to know if you're praying for something that honors God, are you praying it to honor God or are you doing it to honor yourself? Come on now, that's just a good way to figure it out. I've been guilty. I've been guilty. When I ask that question, I go, oh, okay, let's pray differently. It's the Lord to teach me how to pray a little differently. And then secondly, we're to pray intelligent again, not mechanical. We're to pray in a way that, that, that engages our heart and our mind, really believing that God is with us in a personal relationship with him. And I have people, when they start praying, they'll say, you know, prayer seems so awkward. Like, I can't see God. Uh, it's just so awkward. And I go, well, it's sort of like a first date. Now, if you're 
wired like me, I, 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 I probably talked a lot on my first day. I, my wife's here, she'll probably tell you. I probably did all the talking, actually. You know, I, I probably would have done better if I didn't talk at all. But, but, I, that's sort of, but, but a lot of people, they, you know, what do you say? Well, you just start talking. Second day gets easier, right? Third day gets a little more comfortable. If you're married and you still know how to talk to each other, you need to start talking. Come on now, another message of my pride. But the more you talk to somebody, the more comfortable it becomes. And that's how it is with God. Just talk to him. I don't know what to say. We don't have to say a whole lot. Sit and listen. Work yourself through the Lord's Prayer. Like I said, I do it almost every morning. I use it as my model. What do I pray for? You can understand how you could spend a lot of time in these areas. Or you can spend a little bit of time. Maybe you start by mindfully just reciting the Lord's Prayer each morning this week. Just let God do something with it. But catch this. Don't just pray for him. Pray with him. That when you approach God's word, when you approach your day, even when you approach prayer, say, Lord, help me know I'm not just doing this for you. I'm doing it with you. Because just as Jesus was with those who he was speaking to on that mountainside nearly 2,000 years ago, he is with us. He is here. And so if you've yet to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray you would enter into that relationship. That would, that would be the best prayer you ever prayed. It's, Lord, I receive you as Lord and Savior. Come into my life. And if you're a follower of Christ, whether it's been days, months, or years, let me encourage you to say, Lord, help me, help me be more mindful that you're present, that you're working, that we're doing this together. Wherever you find yourself, won't you take that next step with Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing it is to have your word. To be able to, to, to read through the Sermon on the Mount, to be able to study it. To be reminded that you were with those who you were teaching then and you're with us who are learning now that you were as close as anyone could ever be to another when we receive you as Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone's yet to do that, whether it be here on campus, possibly they're watching online, Hopewell Campus, God, that you would just bring them to a point to where even now they would say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I receive you as Lord and Savior. I was created to do life not alone, but with you. So, Lord, help me. Help me learn what it means to do life with you. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us. Again, whether we made a decision to follow you days, months, or years ago, may, may we be genuine in our relationship with you. And what I mean by genuine is would you help us as we approach your words, as we approach prayers, as we approach our day to be so mindful that you're with us. And you've given us this great opportunity to partner with you and literally seeing your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives, our families' lives, our, our community, our region, even the world, through prayer. And so, God, would you just teach us how to pray? As awkward as it may feel at first, Lord God, would you bring us to a point, point of comfort, not comfort in taking it for granted, but comfort in just being able to bring whatever is on our heart to you because whatever is on our heart is on your mind. 
And as we do so, may our heart be transformed into the very image of Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to just be able to study your word together with you. In Jesus' name, amen.